The following podcast includes explicit language. If that's a problem, batten down the hatches. If it's not, welcome. Hi, I'm Josh Levine, and this is Hang Up and Listen for the week of November 13th, 2023. On this week's show, upon the occasion of his three-game suspension by the Big Ten for the Michigan sign-stealing debacle, we will conduct the trial of Jim Harbaugh. And our ruling is binding, so in about 20 minutes, he might be going to prison. We'll also discuss Texas A&M's decision to fire its head football coach, Jimbo Fisher, and pay him an astronomical $70-plus million buyout. And finally, writer Megan Swanick will be here to assess the career of Megan Rapinoe upon her retirement from professional soccer. I'm in Washington, D.C., and I'm the author of The Queen and the host of the podcast One Year. And I'd like you good people to be the first to know that our next season, One Year 1990, is out next week. No, wait. Yeah, next week. That's right. <laughs> Trailer coming soon. You'll like it, I swear. And I will just make absolutely sure. Yes, it is coming out next week. So listen up for that. Stefan Fatsis is out this week because he could not deal with the gravity of that announcement. But with us for our first two segments is Slate's Ben Mathis Lilly. He is the author of The Hot Seat, A Year of Outrage, Pride, and Occasional Games of College Football. Ben, I'm sorry to report that the cover of your book has been suspended for the next three weeks. <laughs> it will be replaced by a photo of Blake Corum and will be spouting real human blood. Uh, like the Michigan football team, I am beyond motivated. I am outraged. I am fired up. I don't know exactly what about or who it was done to, <laughs> but I'm but I'm I'm heated and I'm ready to go. Here with us from the West Coast, uh, prepared with a bunch of Texas Longhorns insults that he will not be able to use. It's Joel Anderson. And Joel, I've got to say, it's unfortunate you're not a Houston Texans fan because uh, another great win for your non-team this week. Well, you look, I told you that I'm open to eventually coming aboard. I'm not against the, the concept of becoming a Texans fan. I still just want to see a little bit more. Great victory against the Bengals. Oh, and, and, and related to the Longhorns, congratulations. You guys won a third of the games against TCU uh, in the Big 12 era. So congratulations. You went four and eight in 12 years against a school that's much smaller with much fewer resources than you. I'm sure it'll translate really well in the SEC. Oof, three and nine just would have sounded so much better, but... You know, four and eight, <sighs> four and eight. That's uh, that's okay. Well, look. I also, I'd like to take this opportunity to say, you know, if Texas A and M is looking for a new head coach, I have a <laughs> candidate in mind: uh, the great Sonny Dykes at TCU. So we'll get to that. Um, and before our first segment, just want to say thank you to Slate Plus members for supporting us for making this uh, conversation about Michigan, this ridiculous uh, Michigan thing you're about to hear possible. Um, without your membership, the show uh, is not something that we could even do at all. So thank you for that. And um, as a Slate Plus member, you get bonus segments on this show and other Slate shows. And this week, we're going to be talking about the absolute perversity of Iowa football, lowest over-under ever in the history of the great sport of college football. And they went under. Um, if you want to hear us ruminate on that and other perverse sports things that somehow give us pleasure. You've got to be a Slate Plus member. Uh, like I said, the bonus segments, ad-free listening for all Slate podcasts, and you get to support us. Slate.com slash hangup plus to sign up. That's slate.com slash hangup plus. 
All rise, the Honorable Josh Levine presiding. Oh, hey, that's me. I want to start off by saying that Judge Levine is an amalgamation of real and fictional characters, which is why I'm about to tell you that, like all judges, I went to the University of Michigan for both undergrad and law school, and I will thus not be recusing myself from the case we're hearing today. And that case is, <laughs> I think this is right, Jim Harbaugh versus the world. The world including, but not limited to, the NCAA, the Big Ten, the three men in red sweaters with blockos on them sitting in the front first row here, and JT Barrett, who did come up short on fourth down in 2016, by the way. Now, Mr. Harbaugh was suspended for three games by Big Ten Commissioner Tony Petiti for violations of the conference's sportsmanship policy because, and I quote, a university football staff member engaged in an organized, extensive, years-long, in-person, advanced scouting scheme that was impermissible. Oh, that sounds uh, really bad. I'm going to keep going for a few more sentences. The goal of the scheme was to gain an unfair advantage by stealing the signs of teams that the University of Football team was due to play later in the season. Oh, my goodness. Such misconduct inherently compromises the integrity of competition. Um, should we just end it there and just move on? Summary judgment? I don't know. I don't know legal terms. Um, I'm not sure how trials work. Maybe we should just begin with an opening statement from the gentleman with his face painted maize and blue over there. What is your name? This is uh, the, uh, is it the, our lawyer's honorable? Oh, hell no. No, okay. Get out of my courtroom. <laughs> this is a barrister, uh, Ben Mathis Lilly, representing, I suppose, uh, Mr. Harbaugh, Coach Harbaugh. So usually we start with uh, the prosecution's opening statement, but in this case, you just seem so angry. And again, there's just so much blood pouring off of your face that I think we should probably go with you uh, first, sir. Please enlighten us. Yeah, I actually noticed while you were reading the intro that you you had reframed this uh, not as the case against Jim Harbaugh, but as Jim Harbaugh versus the world. So I think in this circumstance, I actually would be prosecuting the world, right? I mean, it's Michigan. <laughs> if you if we're to go by Michigan's T-shirts, I'm sure they have shirts like this already. I know they're selling them online. Michigan versus everybody. Uh, you know, that's that's the case we're pursuing here. I would also note that the... You're filibustering, Ben. <laughs> I, for, I would also note for those who are not as deep in the weeds of this story as I am, uh, which is as deep in the weeds as you can possibly go, it appears that the judge who was assigned Michigan's request for an injunction or a temporary restraining order against the suspension, uh, it appears this, this judge actually played Michigan football and yet did not award them the immediate uh, TRO that they were demanding. And in fact, has set a uh, hearing for this Friday to, to uh, I guess, examine the question of whether Harbaugh will be back for Maryland and Ohio State. Very unorthodox presentation so far, but I like it. Uh, I, w I thought that, that, our, that our listeners might appreciate knowing that factoid. Uh, so I think I'll, I'll put it like this. Uh, what is happening to, to Jim Harbaugh is unprecedented, I believe, a coach being suspended before an investigation has been completed, before a determination that the alleged activities in question uh, were known about to that head coach, namely Connor Stallions, the infamous Connor Stallions, apparent recruitment of dozen, up to dozens of uh, individuals to tape uh, opposing teams' uh, sidelines. Uh, and, and before, in fact, the NCAA, uh, which is the, the governing body in this case, has actually ever even made an, a, a ruling on whether that activity uh, was itself impermissible. All this has taken place, all this suspension, all this uh, hand-wringing on the part of other, other uh, competitors in the Big Ten has taken place before any actual determination of guilt has occurred. And I, and I think that is in Michigan's 
case against the world right now is probably the the fundamental fact. Uh, we can get into the question, uh, some of the other related questions about sign stealing and so forth. I think the fact that this is going on in season is is Mi- Michigan's biggest legitimate gripe uh, that uh, there was a, qu- a quote unquote third party private investigation firm. This is according to the Washington Post that researched these allegations, that presented these allegations, and it seems circumstantial evidence seems to suggest that simultaneously leaked the most incriminating sounding allegations about Connor Stallions into the press in the middle of the season, which was followed by waves of outrage from anonymous coaches that Michigan is competing against, uh, which were then leveraged into this kind of extraordinary suspension by the Big Ten, which, by the way, does not have an investigative office, does not have an investigations department, is not responsible for enforcing NCAA rules. That would be the NCAA. And I think that's the crux of Jim Harbaugh's case at this moment. Thank you for just enlightening us with all that fascinating information uh, for the prosecution uh, or wait, maybe that was the prosecution. We're a little bit mixed up here, but uh, we have a guy who's wearing like a throwback, like baby blue Houston Oilers jersey for some reason. <laughs> <laughs> it's called Columbia Blue, sir. Before we get started here, you know, I'm Joel Anderson Esquire, though my LSAT score certainly wouldn't have gotten into a quality law school like the University of Michigan. Uh, but, you know, I, I would just briefly before I get started, I'd like to respond a little bit to Mr. Mathis Lilly's uh, opening statement, which is that unprecedented doesn't mean that the punishment is inappropriate. And in the same way that people accused of crimes Settle sometimes down. have Stop to go to jail. Settle down. <laughs> Settle down. <laughs> and in the same way that people accused of crimes sometimes have to go to jail until their guilt or innocence can be adjudicated. Uh, I think that's a very similar case here with Jim Harbaugh. We don't know whether or not his guilt or innocence has been determined at this point, but we do need to get to the bottom of what is going on. He's been charged and he's been sidelined for the immediate future. We can come, we can revisit it later, but I, I would just like to just say, you know, University of Michigan's conduct throughout this whole investigation has been hilarious. Like it's been a laugh ride. <laughs> is that a legal? Really, is that truly. a legal term? Hilarious. Yeah, 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 legal yeah and hilarious. I would like that entered into the record, uh, <laughs> sir. Uh, and and I think it can all be summed up in the post game comments of interim head coach Sharon Moore on Saturday. I'd like to present this as Exhibit A. All right, we got to roll in the AV cart here. Um, just what, whenever the cart stops rolling, you can you can play this clip. To win on the road in this environment when there were doubts. Sharon, what does it mean to you? Well, I thank the Lord. Well, I thank Coach Harbaugh. Fucking love you, man. Love the shit out of you, man. This is for you. For this university, the president, our AD. We got the best players, best university, best alumni in the country. Love you guys. These fucking guys right here. These guys right here, man. These guys did it. These guys did it, man. Talk to him, man. Love you. Thank you, Coach. Mr. Mathisola, are you crying right now? <laughs> I didn't get any shout out there. He, he didn't even say the yeah. fans. He said the <laughs> alumni. And I, so I, I can't even take any credit for that victory, I guess. I'd also like to note that cursing in public isn't a very Michigan man <laughs> of Sharon Moore. But uh, and I, I'd actually love to have Coach Moore here in our courtroom today to remind him that his employer, Jim Harbaugh, is not and has never been a political prisoner. OK. And in fact, have we not just considered the fact that Coach Harbaugh is just a scofflaw? someone unburdened 
by the rules and conventions that head football coaches are supposed to abide by. He is currently serving his not first suspension of this football season, his second suspension. The first time for for NCAA violations related to meeting with recruits during the 2020 COVID-19 recruiting dead period. In the course of its still ongoing investigation, consider again, Jim Harbaugh served a suspension before an investigation was completed. Hmm? Hmm. Sounds familiar, right? Because the NCAA indicated that Harbaugh, quote, wasn't completely honest when confronted by the NCAA with its allegations. That's to say nothing of the other problems within Harbaugh's program as of late, which includes the recent firings of former quarterbacks coach and co-offensive coordinator Matt Weiss and assistant director of recruiting Shimmy Schimbeckler. So here's the true Michigan man, a perpetual victim, even in the face of growing facts that show that they are what they've long claimed to despise, an outlaw program. Look, I'm not here to defend the NCAA or the Big Ten. I'm just here for the common man, the college sports fan. I'm not usually aligned with these organizations, and I often find them to stand against the well-being of college athletes. But if Michigan is to remain a member in good standing in both organizations, it's going to have to learn to abide by the rules of those organizations. And so far, what we know of Jim Harbaugh is that he's had his problems with compliance and running a tight ship which is at the root of the issue here. So if Michigan wants to argue that Jim Harbaugh had no prior knowledge of Connor Stallions' science-stealing scheme, fine. If Michigan wants to say that Stallions was a rogue employee doing this dirty work largely outside the purview of the coaching staff, it strains credulity, but fine. If Michigan wants to muddy the waters here using the everyone-does-it defense, okay, cool. But we do have credible evidence that Michigan has been in violation of the Big Ten sportsmanship policy. We also know that Michigan has not denied that the impermissible scheme has occurred, (laughs) according to the Big Ten commissioner. And we do know that for all intents and purposes, the Michigan football program is run by Jim Harbaugh. He's the man in charge. So it seems a minor inconvenience, the best case scenario for Michigan, that all that's happened here is a three-game suspension for a guy who has repeatedly broken the rules. It could have been much, much worse. And maybe it still can be, BML, if Michigan doesn't get his shit together. <laughs> My favorite part of that was, it seems a minor inconvenience. So thank you for that. Um, <laughs> I know, uh, Mr. Mathis Lilly, that you have like a dozen witnesses here. Maurice Claret, I know, is waiting out in the <laughs> in the hallway. But, you know, because the kickoff for the Maryland game is going to be in about eight to ten minutes, I think we should probably just, you know, maybe move to closing arguments. I don't know. But please, go ahead. Uh, well, I want to I dig into something that the opposing counsel ad- admitted to uh, in, in, during, during his, uh, his eloquent remarks, which is uh, that in most cases he does not support, uh, you know, the, I guess, the enforcement of the letter of the law of NCAA regulations, NCAA regulations, uh, which is true. And I think if this, were, if this were, in fact, a courtroom, he would have appeared many times on the other side uh, of, the, of the bench and might be in my position. I'm going to let that insult. Just wash over me. But go ahead. <laughs> That's just professional respect from from attorney to attorney. Uh, you've got to be able to argue argue your case uh, for your client. I, I think I would I would I would put it this way. Uh, what what we has kind of been admitted to in 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 uh, Mr. Anderson's remarks is that NCAA regulations are often 
uh, unnecessary or counterproductive to the to the cause of benefiting players, and in some ways are a little silly. Uh, and I think that that is admitted to by a lot of people in this case who want to see Jim Harbaugh punished. And and so what they're effectively arguing is that he should face a different set of standards because they don't like him. And and I think that that speaks to something that's that's often conflated in these kind of discussions about like sports justice, uh, which is. Whether you should care that something happens to someone, this case Jim Harbaugh, or whether it should be happening to them, is it whether you care that something unfair is happening to Jim Harbaugh is a different question than whether it is in fact fair that something is happening to Jim Harbaugh. The rules are supposed to apply equally to every kind of coach, regardless of what they've done previously or what they might act like in public or what they might say. And and, and so I think that we are seeing a double standard applied and a lot of observers, fans, opposing fans are saying, this is fine with me because I don't like him. That's fine. That's a fine personal opinion to have, but that's not how organizations such as the NCAA and the Big Ten are supposed to work. And, and let, let me throw in, you know, one other side of the argument since we're talking about, uh, you know, whether uh, Jim Harwell should be suspended, whether he should be f- fired, as some have called for. Uh, I think that as as Joel alluded to, I, I might have to drop the conceit here, uh, the lawyer's conceit for a second. I think as Joel alluded to, like, what is the important thing? What What is it important that a football coach does? Um, you know, and I, I think player, you know, does is he keeping the players, you know, safe within the context of football? Is he abusing the players psychologically. Uh, these are reasons you should, you should fire a coach, in my opinion. There have been allegations that, that other, other schools encouraged hazing practices or made disparaging remarks to players uh, that showed some sort of kind of racial bias uh, at, uh, you know, at play. Um, he hasn't been accused of anything like that. You know, I, I, we, don't know, we don't know everything that goes on behind the scenes, but he hasn't been accused of anything like that. He hasn't been accused of endangering players' uh, health and safety. Uh, he hasn't been accused of endangering the wider community by, as some coaches have in the past, covering up or, or downplaying criminal behavior. And in fact, he is encouraging, I think in many ways, a forward-looking, a progressive attitude towards what a college football player is, what college football should look like. As those of us here know, he is probably the foremost proponent of the idea that college football players should receive some of the vast television revenue uh, that they generate. He has in the past advocated for reducing restrictions on players transferring from school to school. I, I believe I'd have to double check this. He's actually even espoused a belief that the rule preventing players from turning professional before they've played three years in college should be eliminated. So in, in, in the larger ways, and I think the, the ways that, that, that matter, not that, you know, cheating isn't an important, you know, to, you know, if this is determined to be cheating, not that that's not important. Uh, but I think in the larger ways, uh, larger questions uh, that we talk about on this show, in this courtroom, as it were, Jim Harbaugh, I think, is a force for good in college football, he's good for the players. He's good for Michigan's players. And in fact, if you want to argue about it further, I would argue that Michigan's quote unquote whole thing, the kind of institutional values they hold, while sometimes obnoxious, they can be expressed in obnoxious ways, are in fact also good for college football, which doesn't mean I think every school has to be like Michigan or that Michigan is better than other schools. But I think it is perfectly fine to have a place like Michigan within college football doing what they do having the kind of, you know, priorities that mm. they have. I would like to redirect uh, to, uh, <laughs> to my friend and opposing counsel, BML, here. We're not here to debate whether or not Jim Harbaugh holds the right positions or whether he's a good person. It's whether he, a multimillionaire, many times over, 
can run a college football program that abides by the rules of these organizations that Michigan has willfully and intentionally been a member of for many, many years, right? Yeah. And, you know, I, I'm sure that Jim Harbaugh is a delightful person. I, well, actually, I, actually, I don't. Actually, let me strike that from the record. I, I'm not sure you're allowed to do that, but I'll allow it. Yeah, right. Okay, I, that's right. But I, what I would say, though, is that this isn't an issue with his personality. You know, the opposing counsel said, oh, this is because people don't like Jim Harbaugh, such and such. No, he stands accused of running a program that benefited from an illegal sign-stealing scheme. Not that, this isn't. A, he's not being suspended because he's an asshole and Ryan Walters doesn't like him. He's being suspended because his team had an edge on its opponents every week that they were unaware of. And the thing is, we may think that these rules are silly. We may think, oh, you know what? There's a lot of there's a lot of gray area around scouting and in-person scouting and scouting on tape. I'm willing to hear all those arguments at the appropriate time. But those rules have not changed yet. And if Michigan is the program that it says it is, right? If it is if it is above reproach, if it is one of the good the schools that stands for good in college sports and college athletics and a and, and is going to be a beacon to all these other schools that have been, you know, less good at following the rules, then it needs to follow the rules that are on the books right now. We can change those rules if you'd like, but let's deal with the facts. And right now, Harbaugh stands accused once again of skirting the, skirting the edges of those rules. And I think a punishment is appropriate at this moment. Maybe, you know what? I mean, again, BML. It ain't like they said the dude can't be at practice. Didn't say like he can't go to the football facility. He's just not on the sideline. He, he's basically away from his football team for a total of nine to 10 hours over the next three weeks. I think, I think you all will deal. All right. Since we're at the 20 minute mark, it is time for my ruling. That's just how it works. It's in the Constitution. Um, the thing that I heard today that disturbed me the most was Mr. Mathis Lilly's claim that Michigan, despite all evidence to the contrary, is somehow still superior to other programs in terms of its <laughs> mission, in terms of what um, it stands for. Um, and I don't like the look that you just gave me when I said that. You're welcome to respond. No, I specifically said I it was not claiming that they are superior in any way. I, that's, those are my exact words. Not better. Different. Different, not better. Oh, different. Okay. Sorry. I need to get my hearing checked. But I find what Mr. Anderson just said to be persuasive. And I would actually argue, Mr. Mathis Lilly, that you should be a little bit careful what you wish for. We saw in that very emotionally heart-wrenching moment on the sidelines from uh, Sharon Moore, the interim coach, that it seems like the suspension could very well um, give the opponents of uh, Michigan and Mr. Harbaugh what they want, the feeling of righteousness and justice that they're um, you know, putting him in the box where he deserves to be. And it could give Michigan the ultimate, um, I believe the term is of fuck you ability to show <laughs> the rest of the world, to show the Big Ten, to show Ohio State in two weeks that their culture is so strong that their belief in this man who they have um, anointed as their figurehead is so powerful that they will overcome all of the hardships that have been imposed on them because of their own actions and will uh, raise a banner, win a national championship, and that flag will fly forever um, and just show everyone um, for all of time and all of history that what was done here in this courtroom 
was wrong and an abomination. And so given that, you still want Jim Harbaugh to uh, be on the sidelines against Maryland? The rare win-win criminal trial, (laughs) what you're suggesting. Uh, And I hope it does go that way. Up next, now that we've solved that, Jimbo Fisher, $76 million. Sounds like a good deal to me. On Saturday night, uh, Texas A&M beat its conference rival Mississippi State by the final score of 51 to 10, uh, a score that you would imagine would lead the guy who uh, had the 10 to get fired, which he in fact was. Sorry, Zach Arnett of Mississippi State. Uh, The rare (laughs) moment when the guy (laughs) with the 51 also got fired. Too bad, Jimbo Fisher. Although, Joel Anderson, Jimbo... uh, had a guaranteed contract, as uh, many of us have known. And looky here, $76 million for the guy who came to Texas A&M with a whole lot of promise, or at least uh, the athletic department thought he had a whole lot of promise. And in the first uh, three seasons, he went 26-10. and 10. They finished number four in 2020, although they didn't make the playoffs. But over the past three years, 19-15 and 15 for Texas A&M. And nine-game road losing streak which is not great for the guy who was supposed to come in here, bring Texas A&M the glory that for some reason they believe that they deserve. Uh, Where do you want to start, Joel, with uh, Jimbo Fisher, Texas A&M, $76 million? I mean, yeah, I mean, the $76 million, that that has always been the biggest part of the Jimbo Fisher ever, right? Like that is that is more notable than any win he's ever had, uh, anything he's ever done other than calling out Nick Saban uh, <laughs> a year ago for a dispute over who was uh, using NIL correctly or not, right? But yeah, man, I mean, that's a big, big figure. And I, the thing is, is that I don't know how Texas A&M could have ever expected to go any differently. It's not like when Jimbo Fisher left Florida State that we're talking about a dude who was considered, like at that point, one of the better coaches in the country. Like, I mean, they had won a national championship in 2014. But do you know, before he left Florida State, he went 10 and 3, 10 and 3, 5 and 6. And then he lands this great job at Texas A&M. And it's like, well, wait, this guy is clearly on the decline. Why do you, wh- where does A&M's belief come from? Why did they think that he was going to be so great? So it's like if uh, Texas A&M had hired Ed Ogeron. Yeah, well, you know, it's funny because Ed Ogeron is the last coach that I can remember who won a game and got fired after the fact. So I think the thing is, is that A&M didn't want to take the chance that after that win over Mississippi State, they've got Abilene Christian and then they've got LSU. And so they end the, they end the season on a three-game winning streak, and then it's much harder to fire him, I think. You know, they were just like, well, you know, he ended on a high season. We owe the dude so much more money, and LSU is a ranked team. Uh, it could have gone in another direction. So I, I I, think that they got him out of there before he had a chance to sort of turn things around and change the narrative a little bit. But I don't I don't know, uh, BML, how A&M could have expected to go any other way because, again, like Jimbo Fisher's offense is a relic of like a generation ago. He left Florida State on the decline. And A&M has never in my life, I'm 45 years old, 
A&M has never met expectations in my entire life. There's not been a year that everybody said, oh, man, A&M's going to be good, and they were good. It just doesn't happen. Yeah, I think – well, first to your point about why they did this now, I, I was listening to the Cover 3 podcast, uh, College Football Podcast, this morning, and uh, there was some speculation about why did they do this after a win – because they wanted to do it earlier after the losses, and it took so long to get the money together, which is a very actually a very plausible explanation. They've like got to, to get the boosters with, to pay off the seventy six million dollars. Exactly, mm-hmm. they can't pay this out of the athletic department budget, so they need to get a, a actually pretty firm commitment from someone to pay that. And, it, and so it's funny, like it's being talked about in the kind of way people talk about like corporate mergers or like news about Elon Musk or something. Like, what's the interest rate going to be on this thing? Which is the which is actually appropriate to the scope of the deal. But yeah, and to your other point, I think basically whose fault is this? It's kind of Johnny Manziel's fault, right? I mean, mm. that was like probably the, the peak uh, moment of Texas A&M football this century for sure was, was, Man, was Johnny Manziel beating Alabama. Since then, even the next season when he played Alabama, they didn't win. Uh, it's been kind of downhill from there. But, you know, to the question of like we're always debating on this show, why do schools do this? You know, it's because they're looking for that high and they're looking for that moment, like that, you know, the, the feeling that the, the, the school had, that the football team had after, you know, that big win against Alabama. And they, and they were chasing it, despite the fact, as you allude to, that, that structurally, for whatever reason, uh, A&M doesn't seem to be set up to have the same kind of success as some of the other schools in its orbit, Texas, Oklahoma. And I'm, I'm curious for you guys, you guys know more about Southern football than I do. After Jimbo left, after Jimbo Fisher left Florida State, a lot, a lot of reporting came out that kind of indicated there was a dysfunctional relationship behind the scenes. There were fights over money. Did the program have enough money? Uh, you know, our, is our practice field covered with a roof? You know, stuff like that. That wouldn't seem to be the problem at AM. They have, as we're talking about, more money than they know what to do with. So I, I don't know. I'm, I'm curious for people who may know a little bit more about the situation to say, like, well, wh- why can't they get it together? What, what is going wrong in, in that program that this seems to be kind of like their ceiling? I would say a couple things about Jimbo and Florida State, it wasn't just that the records went downhill, and this probably wouldn't matter to the university, but he really lost control of that program from a public relations standpoint. And I remember this just like enormous New York Times story about how he personally did a pretty reprehensible job like dealing with allegations of criminal behavior within the program. And so you had a guy who, you know, the on-field product diminished, like Joel alluded to, there's um, a lot of talk about how the kind of genius of his offensive scheming is now completely outdated in the spread era. And then just in terms of program management, if you're even just being really kind of crass about it, he didn't do a good job of maintaining the reputation of the school and the university. And yet he gets this really big job from a program that seems to that where money is no object where reputation is no object, where victory is the only goal. And the thing that just seems so ironic about the whole thing is that when you have all the money in the world, when you don't care what anyone thinks about you, and you're still not able to actually win games at a level um, that you believe that you should, then I, I do agree with you, Ben. Then there is something kind of fundamentally wrong there because, you know, Jimbo did beat Alabama once. You don't beat Alabama by accident. You beat them because you have an enormous amount of talent. And the thing that he accomplished, and maybe it wasn't him, maybe it was the boosters, maybe it was the assistants, but they won a bunch of recruiting championships. They were reputed, Joel, to have the best recruiting class in history. Um, and to have the facilities, to have the stadium, to have the fan base, to have the money, to have the 
alleged genius coach to bring in Bobby Petrino uh, to re- try to redeem him, another guy whose reputation was tarnished because you're just willing to go all in and it still doesn't work, then something really is wrong. Um, some Something is just not <laughs> going right that, that needs to go right. Right. Yeah. And kind of to circle back to, to BML's question about like, well, what, why hasn't it worked at Texas A&M over all these years? And it's interesting because when I was a teenager, Texas A&M was actually the best program in the state under, under RC Slocum. So these are my, these are my teenage years. These are the records for, for, for Texas A&M. So the year that I turned 13 in 1991, they went 10 and 2, 12 and 1, 10 and 2, 10 0 and 1. They were ineligible. They won probation that year. That's 94. And then they didn't, they had an 11 win season in 1998 and they didn't win 11 games again until 2012. And again, that's the last time they won uh, 11 games of double digits. So, at that time, the Southwest Conference was sort of reeling from all these investigations and all the things that had sort of torn that that program that that conference apart. And so A and M was sort of able to rise to the top because Texas was weakened. All these other schools were weakened. But I think having lived there, man, you see Kyle Field on on TV during games, and it looks really cool, right? Like you see, oh wow, there's this you know really rabid fan base, and that looks like a really cool scene. Man, let me tell you something. Texas A and M is fucking weird, bro. Like it's a really weird place. Like I mean, I don't know if you've seen like the <laughs> the the you know the the cadets and all this stuff. Like you would think that it was a military institution, right? But it's not. These cadets are not like part of the military or anything. This is it's it's its own weird cultural thing there. And I think that to go to Texas A and M and to be there, you got to really kind of be in tune with that culture. And it's hard to convince kids to go there. Now, of course, that you, we talked about that recruiting class that they just had, right? And that's that obviously shows that they can get kids there. But on the whole, year over year over year, it's really hard to convince kids to go up there and want to stay up there in College Station because it's just. You know, even compared to southern college towns, it's a little, <laughs> it's a it's a little out of step even with some of those like the Oxfords and the Starkvilles and things like that. But that seems like an argument that you would make if they were thirtieth in the recruiting rankings. They clearly, whatever the issues are, they've clearly overcome those. That's true. That's true. But I, <laughs> I think I know what you're saying, which is that you know there's a difference between someone getting someone to come to campus and then getting them to participate in the the much vaunted team culture, whatever that means for a given team. Being there, being motivated, even after you've gotten, you know, whatever money, you know, uh, NIL deal you you agreed to to come there. I mean, I think for people who don't follow college football quite so closely, this was like, if not like a, if not if not LeBron and Chris Bosh coming to Miami, like this was like in that conversation for like the amount of talent, talented high school kids they had coming in two years ago, right? And I, I think that's kind of fair to say, like it was on that level. It was a national championship recruiting class. Yeah, I think the question even then was like, are you know, are some of these players going to come in and and you know decide maybe in two years, you know, this is not for me, <laughs> and it seems like it is going to go that way. They lost a lot of kids out of that class. Yeah, not, so, by the way. So I think that could speak to you know why you know why why the recruiting rankings aren't paying off if people are, get there and they don't like being there, particularly as we're, we're referring to before with a coach like Jimbo who who at least at Florida State did not seem to be too hands on with running a tight ship behind the scenes. I think for people who are not psychotically obsessed with the sport, the thing that transcends is the guaranteed contract, which was given to him by the guy who's now athletic director at LSU, Scott Woodward, Hmm. um, with a massive buyout. That number, um, we've been throwing it around a lot, but getting paid $76 million by um, 
an institution of higher learning or by the boosters of said institution to not coach so you can then bring in somebody else to pay them some massive amount of money is something that when people who don't follow the sport or who do follow it a little bit and just find all this like kind of disgusting, like that's the thing that I think people will point to for years to come, Joel, as a sign of like how diseased and how messed up all of this is. Um, do you think that it's just a little bit rich? Like obviously there's a huge amount of money in the sport and yeah, boosters are going to pay a guy to go away. Like that's like, like, should we be like, you know, clucking our tongues and scratching our chins about this? Or is it just like a slight shift in degree and like other schools do it? It's just A&M because they're A&M is just doing it a little bit more. Yeah, I think the thing is, is if if Jimbo Fisher had won, if he'd had more seasons like the pandemic shortened season when he went nine and one and finished number four, then I think people would care a little bit less about how much money was going into to the pot, right? Like if 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 this was Nick Saban, nobody would say, "Oh, this is outrageous! Like, why are they paying this guy so much money?" Right? Or uh, or whatever. And I I think it's just the futility that makes people say, "Well, wait a minute, why do you guys keep throwing money, throwing good money after bad?" So. Don't you think that Texas A&M is going to win eventually, though? Like, eventually, eventually, I, maybe this maybe this is the fool, the foolish part of it, right? This is what all the A&M fans think. We have proximity to recruits. We've shown that we can get some recruits in here. We have the money. We have the want to. And usually the thing that matters in college football, as much as anything, is want to, right? There's no reason for Alabama to be good at football. It's, it's good at football as it is. It's a small state. It doesn't. It only has so many Division One prospects within its within its borders on an annual basis, but they really want to be good. Same as Oklahoma uh, and, and, and some other places that you would think, ah, why, why would kids want to go there? Like, how is that, how's that school so great? But sometimes it just matters if you really want to. And I just think that, again, it's a matter of getting the right coach in there. And it could just be that A&M is on a tremendous run of hiring bad coaches. And so when they get that right, that we'll, we'll, we'll forget about all this. And then we'll be like, oh, they have everything they need to succeed, and they finally have. Yeah, I think you're always one coach away when you're at this level of the sport. And I think what you were talking about before uh, is probably a part of this giant figure, right? Like I think what Josh's question is like, is this just kind of par for the course in college football? Not really, but I think that's kind of part of what everything we've been talking about goes into it. It's a fairly closed off culture. Uh, it's a unique culture. And so the people who are within that, the students, the alums, the boosters, the donors, you know, they don't, you know, if something doesn't work out, they just, that just makes them want to do it even more. And so the money, the money just keeps going. These are not unrelated matters, right? Like the money, the money keeps getting bigger because they're not succeeding and they are going to, they're locked into it until it pays off with the, with the title. Yeah. I mean, I think if they had hired Nick Saban uh, many years ago, they would have been very successful. I don't know if they would have been like exactly as successful as Alabama is, but maybe they would. And I think. But wait, Josh, yeah. isn't, that, isn't that what it is? This was them trying to hire Nick Saban. It right? was. Like Jimbo Fisher was their Nick Saban. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's what Scott Woodward's trying to do at LSU by hiring Brian Kelly. It's like bring in the like most, <laughs> the oldest, most successful coach that you can to bring kind of stability. To the pro, I mean, to a program, but it's just you can look back in hindsight and say, why did you think that Jimbo Fisher was going to bring stability? Like, why was he this guy? And I think they're probably going to bring in a younger coach now. They'll probably, bring, you know, whether it's Mike Norvell at Florida State. I mean, they'll probably try to go after Dabo uh, at Clemson. I mean, th they think that they can get anyone that they want, probably apart from Nick Saban in the entire universe. And so we'll see what their what their money is able to buy. And 
what you know direction they they choose because you're right like if they don't get it right this time or like why is the athletic director still there something good needs to happen and they have all the resources they don't have any excuses well i mean i i think we all have heard the rumor right that one of the guys that they may try to go after have or do we want to say urban meyer did i start that rumor did you start that <laughs> It's not like they didn't think of it, though. I mean, absolutely. It's not like I had to say it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I I don't know what people think of Urban's reputation at this point, but like, I know what I know what I think of Urban's reputation. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Right. Right. But before all that, we all know dude's a good coach, and like, if A and M were to get him with all those resources and that proximity to talent, like, maybe it finally works, right? Oh my God. All right, Ben Mathisoli. The book is the hot seat. We're expecting a. a second and third edition uh, coming up soon. And we are going to be hearing from you on our bonus segment. Thanks for uh, coming on this week. Thanks, guys. Always a pleasure. Up next, Megan Swanick on Megan Rapino. Hey there, Hang Up listeners. We wanted to share some exciting news. The Slate shop is now open. Go to shop.slate.com to browse our selection of thoroughly curated, high-quality products that support small businesses, Slate's independent journalism, and your shopping habit. From hand-poured candles and expertly crafted pasta makers to official Slate merch and beaded pickle pouches, say that five times fast, the Slate shop is your destination for unique products and fabulous gifts. That's shop.slate.com, and new customers receive 10% off their first order. Happy shopping. On Saturday night in San Diego, Megan Rapino took the field for the final time in her professional career. It was a very big match, the NWSL championship game, where the 38-year-old winger was hoping to bring home a trophy for her club team, O.L. Reign. And it did not go great. After just a couple minutes, Rapino was off the field after suffering a non-contact injury, one that she suspected was a torn Achilles. And by the way, her team lost 2-1 to to Gotham FC. Here is Rapino reflecting on all of that in her post-game press conference alongside her teammate, Rose Lavelle. Lavelle is the one you'll hear laughing at the end. I'm not a religious person or anything. And if there was a God, like, this is proof that there isn't. Because it's fucked up. Um, so, yeah, it just, it's just fucked up. Because, like, it's just six minutes in, fucking yeet my Achilles. I mean, what the fuck? <laughs> so bad. Joining us now is Megan Swanick. She wrote a piece for The Guardian last week looking back at Rapino's career, and you should subscribe to her Substack, The Swan Dive. Megan, welcome to this conversation about Megan. Hello, thank you for having me. I want to start with that clip we just heard, which strikes me as quintessential Megan Rapino in a couple different ways, not taking herself too seriously, even in dark times, and also just kind of as an aside, professing her atheism, which is the kind of thing that will get you aggregated by Fox News, which indeed it was. Um, what did you see and hear from Megan Rapino in what we just heard and just during her last game. I think you you really nailed it. Her her personality shown through in the way that she played on and off the field. As soon as she went down, you could tell she knew that she was seriously injured. 
and she was smiling when it happened. Rose Lavelle actually came right over to her and they looked like they were laughing together at the situation. And I think one of the reasons she was so successful and such a beloved teammate is because she brought that levity to serious situations. So obviously you watched the game on Saturday night in San Diego. For for people that that missed it and didn't get a chance to see uh, Megan's, you know, swan song, like what was the atmosphere like? Like after the injury, was all the air taken out of the stadium basically or like how did it go? You could, you could feel it through the television. I, I had a lot of colleagues that were there, a lot of friends that were there in the stands. It, it broke a record, the crowd for an NWSL final. You know, lots of festivities all day. Everyone very excited to bid farewell to not just Megan Rapino, but Ali Krieger. It was, you know, ticketed as we're, we're saying farewell to these beloved icons. And the third minute, I mean, it, it was as soon as the match started, she goes down and, and she's off the field. And I think that was really devastating. I think a lot of people went to see her last game. We're hoping that she would maybe even come away with a, a big performance, maybe the trophy. And yeah, I think that really deflated things, at least initially. So she said after the game, you don't always get to have the perfect ending. I've had so many perfect endings. It reminded me of her missing the penalty kick in the World Cup loss to Sweden. And again, she laughed about it when it happened. She said, I mean, this is like a sick joke for me personally. This is dark comedy that I missed a penalty. That's why I had that smile on my face. I'm like, you've got to be fucking kidding me. I'm going to miss a penalty. I mean, Honestly, I can't remember the last time I missed. And indeed, she hadn't missed a PK in almost five years. Um, it just seems so hard to get this balance as an elite athlete, Megan, to commit your entire life to this sport, to have a level of commitment that those of us who are not in this realm just, I think, will never quite understand how it totally orients your life for the formative years of, of your life. And then when you have these moments where you've been working for the World Cup, where you've been working towards this final game, to have something just like happen that's so counter to everything you've been hoping for and preparing for, and just be able to contextualize it and frame it as this isn't the end of the world. It just seems like those two things wouldn't live together in, in anyone, but they do inside Megan Rapino. It's impressive, her ability to have that broader picture in the middle of, of her playing career. I think sometimes with athletes, you, you get that perspective eventually. You know, 10 years later, they look back and have put their losses in, in context. I, I actually was in Melbourne in Australia that game and spoke with her, had the opportunity to hear her in, in, in the mix zone. And What's interesting to me about her is that she has that levity, that laughter, that perspective. Um, but she also, you know, had tears in, in her eyes while she was saying, you know, you thought I was going to make it. I thought I was going to make it. So it lives side by side. She, I think, sometimes has been, you know, certainly the, the certain uh, corners of the press, let's say, during the World Cup were really hounding her for, for you know, um, the dancing or whatever it might be. And the laughter after that penalty was one of the things harped upon. And I think that there's more complexity there than, than just simply the laughter, but certainly I think it is a testament to her character. Obviously, this this is it. I mean, I mean, somebody tearing an Achilles in their final game, and she said she's going to know, like, it's, we're not going to see her on the pitch anytime soon again, uh, unless it's like some sort of celebrity game or something, right? But I'm just sort of curious about 
where she goes from here. Like, like, what do you know? I mean, do you think that she's going to maintain an active presence in the NWSL? Or do you think that, you know, she's going to get into coaching? Like, where do you, where do you see her going after this? Well, I think that she had wanted to take a vacation. And unfortunately, I think she might be doing rehab instead in the, in the near term. But I definitely think in the next few years, we're going to see her play a really essential key role in advocacy for women's sports, I think, in particular, but very likely beyond that. You know, that defined, I think, a lot of who she was as a person and as an athlete. She was very outspoken about the things she believed in. And ahead of her last game with the U.S., her last regular season game in OL range, she's talked about wanting to really transition into a role where she's advocating for uh, women's sports. Do you think that her absence will in any way, like, hurt the growth of the league or that, you know, that a lot of people show up. I mean, people that don't know a lot about women's soccer in this country, they've heard her name before, right? So, like, do you think that her absence as the, you know, as the league is finally starting to take off now, that it will impact it in any real way? It's a really interesting question. On the one hand, I think that she and players of her generation, Alex Morgan, Ellie Krieger, the people who came before her, I've really taken a league that was in a precarious position, the third attempt at professional women's soccer in the U.S. And because they were such icons, because they were winning World Cups, because they were household names, they became players people wanted to see. So as you said, Megan Rapinoe was a big part of attendance, viewership, um, investment, broadcast deals. So on the one hand, I I think that there's definitely going to be a passing of the torch where emerging icons or potential icons um, will need to kind of make good on on their potential. I don't think the league will falter. I think that the um, the fans and I think it will only continue to grow. Um, but certainly I do think that there's going to be an interesting period where the Trinity Rodmans and the Sophia Smiths are stepping into that spotlight. NWSL just signed a four-year $250 million deal, which is an enormous sum for the league. I believe the previous broadcast deal, they got four and a half million dollars total. Is that right, Megan? Mm-hmm. So this is a big, a big bump to $250 million. And it's not just the cash, it's that they are going to have the platform over this deal on ESPN and ABC. Um, and, you know, it's a, to- it's a total of four networks. I believe CBS is still involved as, as well. Is that right? CBS, ESPN, I think Prime Video, and Scripps Sports. Yeah, so you could argue that Megan Rapinoe helped get them this deal, and now that they have the deal, the exposure that other players need to become famous and to become icons will potentially be there. But the thing I wanted to talk to you about um, before we get to the kind of big picture legacy and advocacy stuff is, um, in your piece on The Guardian, what I appreciated is that it was a look back at Megan Rapinoe as a player. Um, and that's something that kind of gets lost mm-hmm. in all of these conversations, even about her more spectacular on-field moments. It's just who was she, you know, in the 65th minute of a club game or in, you know, uh, one of the earlier World Cup games where she didn't score a goal. And so I, I thought the comparison that you made, that she's uh, kind of like David Beckham, was really fascinating um, mm-hmm. because... You know, when you think of David Beckham, you think of all the celebrity and she'll probably have a documentary series on Netflix, too. But like, why do you think that she's like David Beckham as an actual player? I think that, like you said, the celebrity status of of the name, the ability to draw people to the sport, the 
transatlantic stardom of of her as an athlete when you when you go abroad if you meet journalists or fans from other countries she's the first name on everyone's lips kind of like David Beckham would be here or to people who might not follow football as closely in in England they could tell you who David Beckham was even if they're not fans I think it's similar with Megan Rapino, but I think and I don't want to diminish her skills and her achievements but I don't I would not say that she is the best women's soccer player of all time in the U.S. or or globally I think that there's a few people who would be ahead of her but she might end up being the most well-known I mean that's Kind of fascinating to me. So she's not the best, but like, where would you break her then? Like, where, I mean, like, if we're if we're lining her up against America's soccer greats in in the past, like, where would she fall then? Because you know, it, it's funny to hear you all say that because for years I thought David Beckham was like the best, you know, like the like one of the best soccer players in the world, and then he came over to America and played, you know, and, and I was just like, oh, okay. Like you could see with like Messi, like the difference between like a, a great player and a player with a great name. So like, where would she rank then among those greats then if she's not the greatest? She's definitely top 10 to 15. I would say top 10. So she is toward toward the top. She's just not quite in the Christine Lilly, Abby Wambach, Mia Hamm realm. And I think that even when you take it into a global context, you know, the year that she won the Ballon d'Or, I, I don't know that she was the best women's athlete or women's footballer, rather, in that calendar year. I think probably Sam Kerr was, actually. But the World Cup, I think, speaks volumes, and she delivers on that big stage. So I think that that kind of is what stays in the forefront of, of people's minds when they think about her rightly. You know, that's just that they should. And... And yeah, I, I don't want to diminish her skill. She's certainly toward the top. She's just not the top. I mentioned the perfect ending before and how she didn't get it this weekend. She got it in the 2019 World Cup. If she had retired then, um, people would remember her as having the best ending ever. And so credit to her for you know, wanting to keep going and extend her career and not just bow out then. But the thing that made her great was her ability in these big moments, in the Olympics, in the World Cup, to deliver when her team needed her. The 2011 game against Brazil, that pass, and the dying moments to set up Abby Wambach is still maybe the greatest goal in U.S. women's soccer history. I mean, it's an unbelievable moment at the time, and it stood the test of time. And then in 2019, when she said she wasn't going to go to the White House, she invited the absolute ire of Donald Trump and all of his supporters um, and people actively rooting against her and rooting for her to fail and for her to su- not only succeed, but you know, be the best player in the tournament, be the bu- best player in the world and lead the U.S. to a championship. It's hard to think of a better kind of fuck you performance in the history of sports. Um, and we've seen it, Megan, to this day. I mean, one of the more unhinged statements and and it's saying something in Donald Trump's entire you know recent history is him saying after they bowed out in 2023 many of our players were openly hostile to America no other country behaved in such a manner even close woke equals failure nice shot Megan the U.S. is going to hell MAGA I it, I still can't believe that that actually happen. But this is like what she's kind of been up against, uh, you know, for the last five years. 
Yeah, absolutely. And that 2019 World Cup, I mean, what an iconic performance, all kinds of pressure. They were in litigation with the Federation um, fighting their equal pay lawsuit. She was having Twitter fights with Donald Trump and all the pressure that already was on them being the reigning champions at the time, having won in Canada in 2015. Everybody wants to beat you, the target on their back, the 13-0 goal against Thailand when people were really coming at them for their celebrations. And I think that she has an affectious confidence um, and assuredness about herself that kind of bled into that team and into the way that they played and the mentality that exuded from her onto the team of, we're going to have fun with this, we're going to win. Um, she really, in, in many ways, carried that team and uh, came up as she did so many times in the dwindling minutes or, or when they needed the goal. She, she had it out of nowhere. Joel, there's a couple of things I wanted to get your take on. Um, you know, she became kind of famous outside of the realm of sports if she wasn't already um, when she was one of the first athletes to kneel after Colin Kaepernick did in 2016. She has spoken out um, for LGBTQ rights, including for trans women to participate in women's sports, uh, an argument that uh, I think a lot of people would not make just because of the blowback that it receives and the target that you put on your back when you make it. She's also in maybe the most prominent same-sex relationship in America with another amazing athlete, Sue Bird. And so when you look back at, at all of that stuff and her her activism, what she did in 2016, what she's doing now, kind of what does that uh, mean to you or what do you think about it? Well, you know, yeah, I'm not going to pretend that I knew a lot about Megan Rapinoe 10 years ago, right? Like I was still kind of coming to know her, know of her and really it was her advocacy during the Colin Kaepernick stuff that I really first started taking notice of her. And I think it can't be underestimated how valuable her contribution was there because I think the one thing is that, and uh, without being too broad here, often Black people in America can feel really alone. Like the, you know, the struggle for justice, you can feel like even though all the civil rights movements and social movements have been multiracial, multi-ethnic. Um, but sometimes it can feel really alone. And for somebody, a prominent white athlete, to take such a visible role as an ally, like, that's incredible. That's amazing. Like, I can't... And in fact, I'm trying to think of a male athlete who's sort of equivalent. I hope I'm not overlooking somebody right now, but nobody else comes to mind, right? Like, I mean, wh who would be the male athlete equivalent? Like, during that moment... When, you know, Donald Trump is ascendant, uh, Colin Kaepernick is one of the more reviled figures in America at that time, what prominent white male athlete stood up and stood alongside him and said, this is okay, I ride with you. Like, you know what I mean? Like, we're, I'm, I'm standing by your side. I can't think of one, right? And I'm sure somebody, people can write in and will tell me that, you know, people that I missed, but... Nobody on the level of a Megan Rapinoe. So, like, I for that alone, like, and it, maybe that's too reductive because obviously she was a great soccer player, but um, I I have to imagine that a lot of people will never ever forget her for that, and she'll be good at any hood for a long time uh, as a result of that. But I do, and actually, I was kind of wondering about this, Megan, because you know, I mean, soccer, youth soccer, especially for women, is the most popular sport in this country, 
That means there's a lot of people that are playing soccer that don't fuck with Megan Rapino, right? So I was kind of curious, like, does that ever, like, come up at all? Like, you know, is there is there sort of, like, a culture war, a culture clash within soccer as it is? Because they're like, oh, she's taking up too much oxygen and she doesn't represent our interests or whatever. Like, is that, does that ever come up much um, when, when you write about her or talk about her? I think that in the NWSL fan base, at least the people I've spoken to in, in the media or in the fan base, people admire what she's done. However, I would say that certainly a few times I've been in stadiums watching her play, once in London at, at Wembley, when the U.S. went there to, they had a friendly against England, and she was the recipient of some heavy jeering and taunting, and some of it, you know, I wasn't, I was in the press tribune area, but I think some of the things lobbed her way were pretty heated and had undertones of displeasure for her advocacy behind it. And in Melbourne, that that Sweden game, she, and I couldn't tell actually, because the neutrals were che- definitely cheering for Sweden that night, I would say. And uh, I couldn't tell if it was actually the US fans or the Australians in attendance, but that she was getting some heavy boos when she went into the match. My last thought, uh, Megan, is that, you know, one of the things that that she said in the run-up to this final game was how much she enjoyed speaking to the media. And I don't say that just in a self-interested way. Um, you can also use that um, as kind of another way of saying how much she enjoyed just speaking, like talking to people, talking to the world through the media or talking to fans and like representing herself and who she is. And it's just so kind of different than I think a lot of the conversation, even in other women's sports. I mean, there's been a lot of talk about the WNBA and whether it's teams or players or the league, just not really prioritizing those sorts of relationships of not talking after tough moments and losses, um, like the New York Liberty, a lot of the players chose not to talk. And, you know, I think you can see from Megan Rapino, you know, you're really only hurting yourself when you do that because yes. some people hate her, a lot of people hate her, some people love her, but she's really owned her own reputation, owned her views. I think we know her better than we know any other athlete, maybe, full stop. And that is, um, it's just a way of being in the world that I think is really rare. And I think we'll really miss it when she's gone. Yeah. She wore her heart on her sleeve and definitely understood that the media was, first of all, a necessary tool to use to promote women's soccer, not just her individually, but women's sports in general. I mean, she, I think, helped shape the story of, of women's soccer, of women's sports, I think personality-wise, she's probably more comfortable in in that role. And I think that she took that up on behalf of teammates who probably didn't want to be in that spotlight in, in tough moments. Megan Swanick will link to your story in The Guardian in our show notes. Everybody should also subscribe to Megan Substack, The Swan Dive. Thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. Now it is time for Afterballs, sponsored by Bennett's Prune Juice, endorsed by Kenny Sailors, who says it was okay. 
After we just spent all that time talking about Megan Rapinoe, we have got to pay tribute to her longtime teammate on the U.S. women's national team. Megan Swanick mentioned her. Um, she also played her final pro game on Saturday, and her team actually won the game. I am talking about defender Ali Krieger, who, like Rapina, was a two-time Women's World Cup champion in 2015 and 2019. Also like Rapino, she's been in a high-profile relationship, getting married to another national team teammate, Ashlyn Harris. Ashlyn Harris having uh, recently filed for divorce from Krieger, a move that has inspired much outrage directed towards Harris from the women's national team fan community. You'll be pleased to know that Megan Rapino had her friend Allie Krieger's back. Krieger said recently, my personal life has been very difficult since about June, and she's been there supporting me through that, and I think that's what teammates are for. Word to the wise. As hang-up diehards know, there is one thing that Krieger will be able to hold over Rapino's head forever, and it's not just beating her in that final game. It's that she was the special guest at our live show here in D.C. back in 2016, and she was really great, I must say. Looking back at the transcript, the thing that stands out is that she talked to us about the importance of equal pay a full six years before the women's national team signed their landmark deal with U.S. soccer. She told us back then, I want to make a point. We're not just fighting for our team. We're fighting for all of the women's teams across the board. We're fighting for Canada. We're fighting for Brazil. We're fighting for Sweden. I'm very proud to be a part of this bigger movement. And we're proud that Allie Krieger was on the show. Joel, what is your Allie Krieger? So on February 28th, 2018, New Texas A&M head football coach Jimbo Fisher was brought in to be the guest speaker at the annual meeting of the Chancellor's Century Council. Texas A&M Chancellor John Charpin had invited Fisher to address the council and other guests along with Kobe Carthel, the head coach at Texas A&M Commerce. At the end of the speeches, Sharp, a former Democratic state legislator who was appointed by Republican governor and alum, Rick Perry, presented Carthel with a plaque honoring his team's national championship season. Almost three months earlier, Carthel had led A&M Commerce to the NCAA Division II National Championship. It was the first title for the school in 45 years. But Sharp wasn't done giving out plaques. He called Fisher to the podium too. And here's what happened. Says here, Jimbo Fisher, head football coach, NCAA Division I Football National Championship, Texas A&M University. The only, <laughs> the only difference between Kobe's and yours is you get to fill in a date. <laughs> I hope I fill in a couple. <laughs> so the plaque had a few problems, one of them being that it read NCAA Division I Football National Championship which is not the division of football that Texas A&M plays in. The other is that the date read 20 hyphen hyphen, as if to say that Fisher would have at least 82 more years to make good <laughs> on the plaque. Uh, still another. It was really dumb. An Aggie joke that became a punchline in real time and only got funnier and funnier as Fisher got further and further away from making good on A&M's $75 million bet. As it would turn out, Jimbo Fisher didn't fill in a damn thing at Texas A&M except for when he was signing his paychecks. Fisher won 45 of his 70 games in College Station, a record worse than his predecessor, Kevin Sumlin. He lost at least four games in five of his six seasons at Texas A&M. The lone exception was Fisher's 9-1 year during the pandemic-shortened season of 2020, which was good enough to earn him a salary bump to $9 million a year. And that was up from his previous deal of $7.5 million a year. You're probably saying to yourself, that's a lot of money for so few wins of consequence. And you're right. 
But what if Kobe Carthell, the humble Division II coach who was getting an audience with the most powerful man in the Texas A&M University system and Chancellor Sharp? Carthell lasted another season at Texas A&M Commerce, going 10-3 and and advancing to the second round of the Division II playoffs. He parlayed his success at Commerce, which included a 35-8 and record in his conference over six seasons, into a new job at Stephen F. Austin University in Nacogdoches, Texas. And Carthell's introductory press conference at SFA wasn't any less comically optimistic than Fisher's was in College Station. Here's a clip. It's the pride of East Texas. We're going to build a championship program that's the pride of Texas. We're going to build a national power here in Nacogdoches. We're going to do it together, every single one of us. Faculty and staff, get on board. Students and alumni, we need you. People of Nacogdoches in East Texas, get behind us. Lumberjacks everywhere, pick up an axe and start swinging. From this day forward, we're chopping wood together and we're taking lumberjack football to the top. Axel. He then just went through there and murdering everyone. Yeah, the music. I mean, I'm imagining like lasers dramatic. and smoke. I wish you could see it, but yes, actually his eyes glowed a little <laughs> bit at the end as he said Axel there, but you have to watch the video to see it. So did they go to the top? I can't say that that's happened quite yet. And if you look at Carthel's record at SFA, you might think he was a failure. He's currently got a record of 26 and 28, including a three and seven record this fall. And while Jimbo Fisher was beating Mississippi State by 41 points on Saturday and still getting fired afterward, Carthel dropped his fifth straight game in a 45 to 17 loss to Southern Utah. But there's obviously more to the Kobe Carthel story than record and scores alone. Last season, Carthel led the Lumberjacks to the Western Athletic Conference Championship. That's the whack if for people that remember. It was only the sixth conference title in school history and SFA's first in 12 years. And a month ago, a student newspaper praised Carthel for having the highest win percentage of any coach in school history. At the time, it was 15 and 6. It's now 15 and 8 since they lost two more games, which is still pretty good and still must rank up there. But Carthel, as you see, landed in a spot rich in history, but not necessarily victories. The Lumberjacks certainly have had some legends who've played from them, from Pro Bowl fullback Larry Sinners, former Oilers and Josh, Saints head coach Bum Phillips, and Eagles linebacker Jeremiah Trotter. But none of them experienced much team success there. SFA entered this season almost 100 games below 500 historically. But at this level of football, the money and media attention are a lot more modest. Carthel makes about $260,000 a year, still a princely sum for life in East Texas. But this year, SFA joined the new United Athletic Conference, which was a mashup of the old WAC and the Atlantic Sun Conference. So its nine members include Abilene Christian, Austin P, Central Arkansas, and a bunch of other schools on that level, including SFA. The commissioner is Oliver Luck, most recently CEO and commissioner of the XFL and obviously father of former NFL quarterback Andrew Luck. Prior to 2021, SFA had been a member of the old Southland Conference, and they'd been a member since 1987. The Southland was and is a small regional conference of FCS teams in Texas and Louisiana, including programs like Sam Houston State, Texas State, and Northwestern State. SFA's primary rivals, Sam Houston and Northwestern State, were in that league, but Sam Houston moved up to FBS this fall, and Northwestern chose to stay behind in the Southland. 
SFA administrators have said they were willing to trade all those great little regional rivalries for a chance to become what its athletic director calls the leading mid-major athletic departments in the nation. I don't know what that means. And the school president said the move would, quote, increase our exposure in some of the fastest growing population areas in the country and at the same time enhance our revenue. See, foolish ambition. Hardly any college football program is immune to it these days. And that's why SFA will be playing as many schools in Utah as Texas for the immediate future. For the mere chance that someone outside of Nacogdoches will hear of the school. And it's why schools like Jacksonville State and Sam Houston State made the leap to FBS this fall. Even though they got as much of a chance of competing for a championship there as me and Josh and Kevin right now. And it's why Texas A&M has now gone 25 years without winning a conference title and still owes its last coach $76 million. So yeah, at the end of the day, Chancellor Sharp's plaque to Jimbo Fisher was silly. Really silly. But as we all know, even in Texas, football has the power to eventually turn everyone into a foolish dreamer in almost every program, save a few, into an Aggie joke. Uh, well, well turned. A nice little parable about college football folly at, at all levels. Don't let Texas A&M distract us from all of the ridiculousness happening at every uh, stratum of the sport. Yeah, everybody wants to do it. I mean, you know... Um, I just think about like all the schools that have joined in the Sun Belt in the last few years. And like, I think I actually think that some of those schools in the WAC are aiming to get into uh, the FBS level within the next few years. So, what's wrong with just having a nice little game against Northwestern State and playing for an X? You know what I mean? Like, why is that not enough for you guys? That is our show for today. Our producer is Kevin Bendis. Listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out. Go to slate.com slash hangup. You can email us at hangup at slate.com. And don't forget to subscribe to the show and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. For Joel Anderson, I'm Josh Levine. Remember Zelmo Beatty, and thanks for listening. Listener.